It's a joy to be with you this morning to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as we continue on this sixth Sunday of Easter in this wonderful new home that God has given us on East 31st Street in Tulsa. I trust that you're enjoying this blessing from the Lord. Uh, that was a good chance to say yes, amen, so be it. You enjoying this new house that God has put us in? It's certainly a, a privilege and a, a tremendous, more than we could have thought or asked or dreamed. Uh, but it also is a question mark. You sort of ask God, why did you put us in this big building, in this big, beautiful space with all these wonderful classrooms? And we had a great tell-off class this morning in the chapel, and that was wonderful, and all this great space. And we have to be convinced that God wants us to use this space for his glory, for his goodness, and that includes touching the neighborhood. And so I'm going to ask you to make sure you put on your calendar now uh, May 22nd, it's a Tuesday night. I'm going to ask you to join me. I'll be here and uh, we'll be meeting to, uh, we have a meet, it's called Meet the Neighborhood. And the neighborhood's not going to come here, but we have been doing some uh, research and some work. Uh, one of our members, Lindsay Haney, is going to be making a presentation to help us get a, a, a handle somewhat on where God has put us and start to prayerfully consider ways that we can be a blessing to this neighborhood. There are 100,000 souls in a three-mile three radius of where you sit. 100,000 people live in a three-mile radius of where you sit. God's given us some work to do, I think. And so I'd ask you to join me May 22nd, 7 p.m., uh, for that meeting, it's going to be, I think, an important time for us to get ready for what God has for us. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 10. During Eastertide, some of the readings that normally would be in the Old Testament show up in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 10, <clears throat> we have these five verses, starting at verse 44, that conclude... Uh, this particular story that we see here, and it's, uh, it, well, it's humorous to me. While Peter was still speaking, now don't anybody get ideas, that's what's about to happen. The Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues, and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of your son Jesus, thankful, grateful for your goodness, for your love, for your mercy. We pray in these next few moments that we spend together uh, that your Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit we read of, even in this text this morning, would show up in profound and powerful, meaningful ways. Give me the right words, but give all of us the right ears and the right heart that we would connect with you in a way that leaves us transformed, changed, focused on participating with you in your mission in the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... John's gospel, as you heard it this morning, and John's epistle, as you heard it this morning, 
have been working on our congregation almost like in stereo for the last several weeks. For these last few weeks of Eastertide, we've been hearing these words overlapping both in the Gospels and the Epistles about loving, abiding. Here's our favorite one, obeying, commands. Even going back a little bit into our memory, things like laying down your life and so you also ought, that's our favorite word in the Bible, right? You ought to do this. And we're like, oh. Today we hear things about bearing fruit. And all of this activity is somehow a manifestation of God's divine love, that God has loved us through Christ. And as I shared a couple of weeks ago in my sermon, The Fountainhead, that it's Jesus Christ himself who not only gives us the revelation and the knowledge of what this love is, but he gives us the power to embody it ourselves. And I've been thinking about Eastertide, this odd phrase for us, low church, free-thinking, crazy, Pentecostal, Baptist, evangelical people, Eastertide. When I grew up, Christmas, if you were lucky, was stretched out a little bit because of the holiday, right? You get off from school and what have you, and uh, you'd sing about the 12th day of Christmas, but you didn't really know what that kind of meant, you know? We didn't have Advent, per se, growing up in my situation. And then, of course, Lent was for the Catholics, right? Can I get a witness? Lent was for the Catholics. We didn't do that, you know? We ate whatever we wanted the whole time. And then in my church, Good Friday was that torturous day where we had a three-hour midday service, from noon to three, Jesus was not the only one on the cross. I was up there with him in what, when you're 12 years old, it is the most boring thing you could ever imagine. Um, and so I thought we'd try that this morning, a three hours. No, I'm just, just kidding. I'm really just kidding, Pastor Brent. He's, he's watching me this morning. Um, but we, we, we didn't really celebrate Lent. We didn't celebrate Advent. And we certainly didn't think of something like Easter Tide. It's interesting that Easter has these bookends of 40 days. 40 days of Lent to prepare us. And then these 40 days of Eastertide that lead up to Ascension Day, which is this week upcoming. These 40 days that I don't know so much if they prepare us as much as they recalibrate us to the event of Easter. There was a book that came out about 35, 40 years ago called How Shall We Then Live? I think that's sort of the question, right? If the resurrection is true, how does that change anything for my life, the way that I think, the way that I feel, the way that I act, the decisions I make? And that's where I think this stereo chorus of John's gospel and John's epistle of, well, you have to abide in Jesus and you abide by obeying his commands. And as you do this, this is what love looks like. And because of that, it's a very fruitful reality. Well, it sounds good, but I think Eastertide is that annual moment for us to come back and say, am I really living what I believe? In other words, I almost wonder if, if Lent is some sort of holy demolition of the soul. If Eastertide is like a holy recalibration of the soul. To say, wait, no, I believe in resurrection. 
but am I acting? You might remember these things. They're, they're called checks. Do you remember those? Checks, right? And there would always be, or go back even further, when you were in grammar school and you used to like write papers. Does anybody remember that? Writing papers, right? And you'd have to put at the top of the paper, what would have to, there'd be some items you have to put up there. You have to put your name up there, right? What else has to go up there? Okay, you jumped way too early to that one. I was hoping to get like the teacher's name of the class or something, the date. Did you ever notice like after the two weeks when you completely unplugged your brain for Christmas break, you came back after New Year's and your papers were always a mess because at the top you were constantly having to erase or cross out the fact that you wrote last year's date on the paper. Anybody did that? right? You had, you had 2017, and like for the next three weeks, all of your papers were like 2017 crossed out with a 2018. You know what I'm talking about? And your check's like, ah, oh, man. I think this is sort of what Eastertide is. Eastertide is that time where we remind ourselves it's not 2017 anymore. Eastertide is a time we remind ourselves that we don't have to live with fear of death, fear of loss, We don't have to live with that sort of lurking subconscious despair. We can start writing a different date on all of our documents. Now, the the text in John is pretty intense where imagine this. He says in John 15, 10, as we've heard it, if you keep my commandments, everybody say if. (sighs) What is that? It sounds conditional in a way, doesn't it? I don't don't know what to make of this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there may be other ways to abide in his love, but we know this is one of them, right? If we keep his commandments, but this is the New Testament. I thought commandments were Old Testament, right? Now, I love the next verse, though. The next verse is good. So my Bible, I didn't underline 10, I underlined 11. I'm just giving you a glimpse into the way my brain works. So I didn't want to underline 10 because that's a little intense. So I went to 11, and Jesus says in verse 11 of John 15, he says, I have said these things to you so that, okay, when I see so that, purpose, here we go. He's telling me why. Why am I saying all of this nasty commandment talk? So that my joy, how many people like joy? I'll wait. How many people like joy? Okay, don't raise your hand. You're not getting any. How many people like joy? Okay, I'm just trying. trying to. Okay. I said all of this stuff, maybe that made you uncomfortable. Maybe that started putting a finger on something you didn't want touched. I said all of this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. How many, I mean, I would love some complete joy. And I don't know about the if part, though. Let's keep, what else does Jesus say here? In verse 15, John 15, 15, he says, I do not call you servants any longer. I like this. I like where he's going with this. I'm getting a promotion. Because the servant doesn't know what the master's doing. But I have called you friends. Oh, I like the sound of this. I'm not an outsider. I'm not a plebe. I'm not, I'm not down in the lower rank. I'm in the inner circle now. I'm one of the cool people. I'm one of the friends. Because, oh, there's a reason now. I'm calling you friends because I have made known to you, I've revealed to you 
everything that I have heard from my father. Jesus is talking about this shift. So we still have the commands on the one hand, right? But now we have this shift, this promotion, it feels like, from servants to friends. It's like, wait a minute. Seems to me like servants and the commands go together, right? You all tracking with that? Like servants are the ones who obey commands. Friends, we kind of follow suggestions. Right? Friends, we give each other hints. It reminded me of the story of Jesus and Peter on the shore. The end of John's gospel. Peter is now in the friends group, right? He's in the inner circle. He heard that in John 15. You're not servants, you're friends. And what does Jesus say? They finish eating breakfast in the 15th verse of John 21, and he says to Simon Peter, do you love me? Right, there's that word again. If you love me, do you love me? If you love me, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, I'd appreciate it if you would feed my lambs. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Second time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, when you have some time, please think about tending my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And here's the thing, Peter felt hurt. Can I submit to you this is proof that they're friends? When you're just a servant and the boss tells you to do something, the boss is, you might get annoyed, you might get agitated. I don't know that you feel hurt. It's just Peter felt hurt because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? I love this thought. Augustine comments on this and he says, to the threefold denial, you remember this is Peter's low point, right? The threefold denial. There is now appended a threefold confession. And I, we've all heard this before, right? That this is Jesus sort of redeeming Peter's three denials by getting these three confessions of love. But I love what Augustine says. He said, Jesus did it so that Peter's tongue may not yield a feebler service to love than to fear. He's recalibrating Peter. He's saying when you're gonna use your tongue the engine that's driving it is not fear, it's love. It's love. But that love is now in the context of obedient action. You see that? Saying, if you love me, you'll do these things that I'm telling you to do. And so this is sort of, I think, a pretty good setup for the story in Acts. That reading that just coincidentally happened to pop up today in our lectionary of Acts. We read the tail end of it, but the front end of the story is quite compelling, maybe worse convicting. In Acts 10, if you want to look at it, I'm just going to read verses 9 through 16. And Peter is at the home of Simon the Tanner, 
It says, about noon the next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. I mean, he was having like a sugar crash or something here. No, I think it was God. Because he saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all the birds of the, uh, I'm sorry, all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. Peter, my friend, whom I love, I know you love me. We worked this out on the beach after breakfast. We're good. I have a command for you. I'm not that adventurous of an eater, so when I read about reptiles being on the sheet, it's a little off-putting. Anybody else? All kinds of birds, you know, like the Canadian geese that sort of torment this place. We might want to do something to them, but not eat them, I don't think, right? Take them away humanely and put them in another place. So we could find natural objections to eating all these kinds of animals, but we know that Peter has a different kind of objection here. And this is the great oxymoron of Scripture. Verse 14, Peter says, By no means, Lord. Those don't go together. (laughs) No, Lord. You are not the Lord. That's what he's saying. For I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. So he's not getting into the grossness of a lizard. He's getting into the profaneness, the uncleanness, the Jewish dietary codes that we find in Holy Scripture. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Remember the shift from friends, from servants to friends. Apparently the lizard has also made a shift, right? A shift from unclean to now suddenly clean. And everybody who wanted to eat a lizard said, okay, we're going to talk about that. Now look at this. This happened how many times? Three times. Three denials, three confessions, three confrontations. And the thing was suddenly taken up into heaven. Now, for those of you familiar with the story, here's what we know. The greater context for this is that the gospel is about to be released, if you will, to the Gentiles. Up until this moment, the followers of Jesus have been exclusively Jewish by ethnicity. They have been descendants, as in DNA descendants of Abraham. And this is... Cornelius, a Roman centurion, is the one who's opened up this 10th chapter, and he's a giver, and he's a prayer, and God has set up this incredible opportunity for encounter, and so he sends a party to, prophetically, sends a party to Simon the Tanner's house to retrieve Peter and bring him back to his house, which of course is also a violation of Jewish law, because now Peter's about to make himself unclean by entering the home of a Gentile. You see, the radical obedience of kill and eat 
was setting Peter up for the radical obedience of go with these men. And I would have to think that this must have felt both in the trance, for sure, and possibly on the journey, like Peter was laying down his life. I mean, think about Peter's, I know the language is sort of concise here, but in this 14th verse, when Peter says, no, Lord, he basically says, my entire life, I've never done this. My entire life has been faithful to the codes that you gave Moses. The voice is saying, lay down that life for Cornelius. So what am I getting at? I'm kind of saying that we've been hearing these gospel texts and they've been uh, intensified by the epistle of John. And I feel like this Acts reading this morning is giving us the drama. It's giving the story and saying, this is what it looks like to lay down your lives and be obedient, not as a servant, but as a friend. This is what it looks like. Now what's interesting here is it says in the 20th, uh, uh, 17th verse, excuse me, it says, Peter was greatly puzzled about what to do with this vision. I love that word puzzled. It, it could be phrased this way. He was perplexed. He was at a loss. He was stupefied. It wasn't so much that he was like sort of whimsically quiz, like, oh, I wonder what this could be. He was like, are you kidding me? Like jaw uh, open, you know, just like this, this cannot be. And I can't help but wonder if obedience to God at some point, not all the time, but at some point will almost certainly feel wrong to us. And it's because our conscience is not infallible. Our conscience is a gift from God, but it is not God. Our conscience, which thankfully is some sort of a global phenomenon, people of all faith stripes and backgrounds tend to have one, and we thank God for it, but it's a common grace. It is not God. And the fact is, his ways are not our ways, as we quote so many times. There's going to be a point, I think, where the God of heaven says, do this. And we say, that's got to be wrong. Well, God, that would violate my conscience. Friends, our conscience has not redeemed us. Our conscience certainly has not created us. And while our conscience can be a helpful guide... It is not the final authority. I think sometimes we don't realize, and I can't believe I'm going to say this at a pulpit, we can do more than we think. (laughs) Most Christian ministers have made their living telling you you should be doing a lot less than you think. (laughs) I'm saying there comes a point when God is going to give us, his friends, commands in a loving context, not in a demeaning, manipulative context, he's gonna give us commands and we're gonna say, what? 
I can't possibly obey. I think there are a few reasons that we struggle with this. Obstacles to our obedience. And one is like Peter. We feel like obedience to God is a violation of God's own rules. But here's another one. I think we say this because we're convinced we're not qualified to obey. Certainly if we think about our past, maybe this past week, there are things that we remember all too quickly and all too well. Maybe our own denials in the court of Caiaphas. There's no way that God could use me to do this when I've done that. Can I encourage you this morning and say, I think God likes to use all kinds of folks, among them being imperfect folks, because those are the only kind of folks that he can use. And the book that we have in our hands this morning is full of thieves and liars and murderers and adulterers and idolaters and just nasty people. And God says, I can work with that. It's awesome. Not that you did that, but that he can work with that. I think an obstacle to our obedience is that we're convinced we're not capable. We don't have the ability or the capacity or the power to obey. It would seem to me that this is why Christ in you is the hope of glory. There's a bit of hope that what is lacking in us is made up by the Christ who lives in us. It's the encouragement that we say rightfully. I don't think it's problematic to say, as we've heard in church all our lives, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And this 20th verse is where after the back and forth, things come to a head and Peter hears these words. Now get up. I'm gonna say it sassy. Can I say it sassy? I'm gonna say it sassy. This isn't a preacher voice. This is like annoyed parent voice, okay? Like Saturday morning, clean your room voice. Now get up, go down and go with them without hesitation for I sent them. Now God would never talk that way. He does to me, but to most people, he doesn't. <laughs> I just need a little extra sass. That's really what it comes down to. But how about that one with no hesitation? Any other holy foot draggers besides me, right? Like, God, I promise I will. I just need to get it settled in my spirit. How about, that's a good one, right? It's just, it's, I'm letting it marinate, you know? It's like, no, this is going to be flash fried. Get your butt up and go with them. That's what he says, right? He's like, come on. I get you three visions, I'm talking to you. All right, I'm done, get up and go. Friend, I love you. you do we get the vibe of what's happening with Peter here? I really think this story is important for us because I really think this is how the resurrection changes our life. I think this is how Easter recalibrates us to how to embody the resurrection. We're not perfect. We're a little bit slow on the draw, a little bit stubborn, a little bit hypocritical, paradoxical. No, Lord, I'm not going to do it. And God's like, okay, I'm going to do this three times. I'll talk to you a little bit. You're going to be dumbfounded. Okay, go. 
Just go. And so here we see the obedience of one of Jesus' friends who's loving the Lord. Check this out. By feeding sheep that are not of his fold. Remember we talked about that? John 10. We're gonna send you to sheep that are not from the Jewish fold and you're gonna have to lay down your life to do this. But I've already done it. You've got power. And this is where we pick up our text. The title of my sermon this morning is Obedience Interrupted. Because if Eastertide does anything, it pushes us towards Pentecost. You have to at least acknowledge this much with me. If you look at one of those really cool Christian calendar graphic things, most of the year is green. Most of the year is quote unquote ordinary time. And that's because the bulk of the Christian life, the ordinary Christian life, is the life that flows out of Pentecost. It's only possible with the power of the Spirit present in our lives, corporately and personally. And so Peter has this moment where he is finally obedient. He's finally embodying, if you will, this abide by obeying commands and loving. And he starts in verse 34, speaking to the sheep from another fold. And he outlines, he provides this compelling but brief story of the gospel about Jesus of Nazareth and how he was put to death and he was hung on a tree. And I love this line that God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear to us who were chosen by God. It's this beautiful, compelling story. And I I want us to use our imaginations for this moment today. Let's get the rhetoric really high. Peter says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And suddenly... At the high point of his rhetoric, he's interrupted with an outburst of tongues. Mid-sermon. He's interrupted at the moment when he thinks his obedience is what it was all about. The moment that Peter has finally settled into the fact that he's a spiritual success, The moment that Peter has now hit the high point of his rhetoric and he's like, I'm obeying on all cylinders right now. (laughs) Hello? The moment where he's expecting, this is very important, Acts chapter 2, again. He doesn't get to finish his sermon. Acts chapter 2 is a great script because he gets done with this powerhouse sermon and they say, what must we do to be saved? It plays out like an amazing movie. It's great. And he's like, repent and believe and 3,000 souls are added. He's mid-sermon. Somebody's like, shut up, 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 What just happened here? <laughs> I want you 
to understand that was not a divine utterance. It was just I was repeating ba ba ba. Not to say that it doesn't exist because it does. But to suggest that maybe it shows up at the most weird times. And that is where we're headed. We're headed to a life after the resurrection, not only in which we have this supernatural ability to be obedient, not only in which we're somehow now by grace abiding in Christ as his friends, full of his joy and bearing fruit, but that in the midst of all of this, God is going to interrupt our obedience with his very self. He's going to interrupt our obedience with something other than we could manufacture. He wants to interrupt what we think is great preaching and great living and God help me, great liturgy. And he wants to interrupt it with something more important than our preaching, our praise service, or our liturgy. He wants to interrupt it with himself. And maybe we have this moment in Eastertide to recalibrate our imaginations to say, not only what would happen if I could be radically obedient to the point that it even kills me, but that in the midst of my obedience, you'd show up in such a way so that people weren't talking about my sermon. People weren't talking about my obedience. People were talking about your presence and your power and your goodness. And to that end, I say, God, interrupt us. Let's pray.